This week, Anthony Albanese's train wreck interview on 2GB on The Voice. Will he or it ever recover? Dan Andrews acts as the Commonwealth Games. Has he finally gone a step too far? Two leading global historians challenge the stolen land narrative pushed by First Nations people worldwide. Brittany Higgins gets a new job. And finally, some good news for the Liberals at the polling booths. G'day and welcome to this week's edition of The Other Side Australia for the weekend starting Friday the 21st of July 2023. I'm Damien Curry, and this is your weekly summary of the best news and commentary of the week from around Australia and the world presented from a non-woke, non-left wing perspective. That means we bring you the other side of most issues because most of the old media in Australia looks at the news through just one social, economic and political lens. This show is always on demand for you here on ADH TV and new episodes stream first every Friday night at 8pm with our complimentary interview show The Other Side Interviews streaming first every Tuesday night at 6pm. And we've got a huge interview show coming up for you this Tuesday night where I'll be speaking to Rebel News reporter Avi Yemeni. Uh, and Avi opens up on a whole range of issues that he hasn't spoken about before. So do make sure you join us uh, for Tuesday night's show. It's going to be a really, really special one. And of course, unlike the ultra-woke ABC, which you're forced to pay for, when you disagree with us, which we welcome, at least you know you aren't paying for it. Let's go. So, how about those Commonwealth Games, eh? Well, has the king of spin, the king of the fake sincerity and warm fuzzies who's loved and adored by all emotionally driven, logic deficient radicals, has he finally gone one step too far? Has Dan Andrews finally reached the point where even his most loyal supporters can see through the spin doctoring and artful messaging of his team of dozens and dozens of PR hacks paid for by the public? Who knows? Rusted on Labor types are very good at ignoring the obvious. But you'd have to be pretty blinded by irrational love or a complete idiot to fall for this obvious spin. Six to seven billion dollars is well and truly too much for a 12-day sporting event. Uh, I will not take money out of hospitals and schools in order to fund an event that is three times the cost uh, as estimated and budgeted for last year. Oh, who could, who could disagree with that? In PR we call that reframing the narrative. No, it's not about embarrassing the state and the nation and damaging the reputation of Victoria and Australia for all future negotiations with anyone on anything by walking away from a contractual commitment. Oh no, it's about hospitals and schools and social housing. That'll have the left reaching for the Kleenex and thinking you're a hero for saving all the sick people and the kiddies. Please tell me that you can see it now, Labor voters of Victoria. Please tell me that you finally see what he does routinely. It is so tragically obvious. This is the political spin doctor class playing you all like a fiddle. All those little 20 and 30 something communication graduates flitting around those state government offices on their big taxpayer funded salaries thinking to themselves how supremely clever they are for managing and manipulating the public opinion sentiment 
And it usually works, this rubbish. The man unnecessarily locked Victorians in their homes for months on end, and 37% of the state still voted for him. The vast majority had the good sense not to, but just not enough of them to stop him winning. But that also had a lot to do with how utterly garbage the alternative was, of course. UK alternative media commentator Katie Hopkins, someone who is despised by the control freaks for telling it like it is and daring to have unapproved opinions, totally gets the game Dan and his PR team are playing. You see how Dan Andrews starts talking about schools and hospitals because he wants the people of Melbourne to applaud him, of the people of Victoria to say, oh, well done, Dan, you made the right decision because maybe I'll get better access to a hospital. And they call out Dan Andrews for willfully ignoring their recommendations. So they basically said, why don't you just use the venues you've already got and make them a bit better instead of trying to spend huge amounts of money on new premises, new buildings. And he ignored all of that and he didn't give them any warning. And he hasn't offered any sense of what might be a solution now that he's screwed everybody. And finally, as they make the point, he has totally put Melbourne, Victoria as being you know, the bottom of the barrel. But maybe, just maybe, he's gone one step too far this time. Dan Andrews' complete disregard for any kind of proper discussions with Commonwealth Games officials and other stakeholders before just dropping his announcement on them, it didn't go without comment or criticism. Let's look at some of the things Dan Andrews said in his announcement that weren't, well, true. Take it from the top, spin maestro. Uh, last year, when the Commonwealth Games authorities approached us uh, and needed someone to step in to host the 2026 Commonwealth Games uh, as a state, we were happy to help out, but of course not at any price, and only if there was lasting benefit for Victorian communities and benefit for the whole state. Nice. If it were the least bit true. The multi-city model was for delivering Victoria 2026 was an approach uh, proposed by the Victorian Government in accordance with the Strategic Roadmap of the Commonwealth Games Federation, or the CGF. It was pitched to the CGF after Commonwealth Games Australia had sought interest to host the Games from several, several states. Uh, they did not step in as the host uh, at the last minute, as indicated by the Premier earlier today. That's the Commonwealth Games Australia CEO, Craig Phillips. And here's the Commonwealth Games Federation's Corrine Smith talking to the ABC 7.30 report. When Victoria was granted these games in the first place, uh, Daniel Andrews says that they were happy to step in at the last minute. Is that what happened? No, that's a really interesting observation and certainly I'm not, I'm not um, familiar with that pathway. My understanding was that the Commonwealth Games Australia went out for expressions of interest and um, Victoria came forward with this model and it went through a process to be presented and ultimately successful for the, to the Commonwealth Games Federation. Right, so the claim Victoria was bailing out the Games was a, a slight manipulation of the actually truthy, facty stuff by the Dan the PR guy. What have you got next for us, mate? What's become clear uh, is that the cost of hosting these games in 2026 is not the $2.6 billion which was budgeted and allocated and is sitting, uh, vast, vast majority of which has not been spent. Uh, it's not $2.6 billion, it is in fact at least $6 billion uh, and could be as high as $7 billion. 
and I cannot stand here and say to you that I have any confidence that that even $7 billion number would appropriately and adequately fund these games. So why the sudden cost blowout? Well, these were meant to be Victoria's games, not Melbourne's games. The idea was to inject money into four regional hubs across the state to boost those regional centres. That's how Dan was going to get his economic and political benefit out of the games, by spreading the advantages across the state. But the costings should have been better thought through beforehand, and the only person to blame for a blowout like this is Dan himself. He was all too ready before the last state election to excitedly announce Victoria had won the games and trumpet this as some big achievement. But now it's, ah, uh, you know, we were bailing them out, helping them out. The fact is, you should honour the original commitment to host and cut the budget by just holding the games in Melbourne using existing facilities. The stated cost overruns, in our opinion, are a gross exaggeration and not reflective of the operational costs presented to the Victorian 2026 Organising Committee Board as recently as June this year. I'm a member of that Organising Committee Board. Beyond this, the Victorian Government willfully ignored recommendations to move events to purpose-built stadia in, in Melbourne and, in fact, remain wedded to proceeding with expensive temporary venues in regional Victoria. CGA welcomed the opportunity to review the financial analysis prepared independently of those who have been involved with the coalface of planning and delivery. Is Daniel Andrews' claim that the costs of the Games could have risen to six or seven billion dollars or even more, is that claim credible? Well, it's certainly not figures that we had any awareness of. Um, the last time there was any conversation at the board table around figures around um, Victoria, it was getting up towards the three billion conversation. More generally, the original budget was around 2.5 billion, if I recall correctly. So certainly that six to seven billion was not something that we had ever heard, um, and certainly we're not projecting those types of figures at all. Amazing. The impact of this move and the way it was handled by Dan Andrews on Victoria and Australia's reputation can't be overstated. Most people in the world outside Commonwealth countries won't know or care, but the people in the know will. The people who do business with the state of Victoria or the federal government will now think twice when any Australian government gives them their word or commitment. It's a shocking breach of trust. Dan Andrews should be sacked for the way he went about handling this alone. He truly does live up to his nickname, Dictator Dan. The lack of engagement and stakeholder consultation is inexcusable. And if he gets away with this, it sends yet another very bad message to our politicians that they can do almost anything without consequences. It's unlikely the taxpayers will get away without hurt, however. It's going to cost possibly a billion dollars or more just to break this contract and Victorians will get nothing for that money. When you sign up to a Games, be it Olympic or Commonwealth, there are guarantees, there are commitments, and there are contractual obligations, and the, and the contract is, is signed by a number of parties, and so, you know, there's, that's why I guess why the dismay and the shock that these other parties seemingly were not even involved or consulted about the decision. You've been involved in international sport for a long time. Have you ever seen a decision like this taken in this way? No, I mean, it's, it's quite unprecedented. I guess through COVID, we've seen, you know, quite some, you know, very impactful things had to have to happen. But 
you know, it's really important, not so much always about what the decision is, but it's also how it's taken and how, you know, there's respect and there's um, integrity around the process and the communication and relationships endure. Um, and, and I think that there, you know, it feels to me like those things have been compromised as part of this, this process. We thank the dedicated staff at the organising committee and the Office of Commonwealth Games for their efforts, acknowledging that today will probably be one of the toughest days for them as they've worked so hard on delivering the Games. The Victorian Government, however, has jeopardised Melbourne and Victoria's standing as a sporting capital of the world. Thank you. Um, well, not sure at this stage, certainly the Victorian Government has not presented us with the details that we would need to have an analysis. We were notified the very first instance this morning by them at around 8 o'clock when I took a phone call, so we've had no detail provided to us by the Government. Were you shocked yesterday when the Victorian Premier backflipped on the commitment to host the 2026 Com uh, Games? I, I was. Uh, I, we did get a, a very uh, short heads up that the announcement was coming, uh, but uh, obviously it's not something that uh, we were anticipating, given that it's been uh, in, the, in the wind for, for some time. Oh, he's angry. He was totally sidelined, you can tell. The reason Victoria can't host the Games, let's get real for a moment, is that the government is broke. Net debt for that state is heading for $200 billion dollars. A level of debt unknown in Australian state government history and well above other states. The place is completely mismanaged. To salvage our reputation, Dan Andrews should be required by the federal government to honour his commitment to host the 2026 Games and to do so with a scaled-down plan centred on Melbourne or Geelong at a budget cap of $2 billion. Do something governments seem incapable, incapable sorry, of doing in Australia. Just get it done on time and within budget through good management and leadership. An interesting little video released this week by America's PragerU, the educational channel designed to counter dominant left-wing narratives in our universities. It struck me because the title was are we living on stolen land? And I thought, gee, that sounds familiar. This video was written by Professor Jeff Finn Paul, a professor of economic and social history at the prestigious Leiden University in the Netherlands. He's a widely published and popular historian and has a new book coming out soon called Not Stolen, the truth about European colonialism in the new world. Professor Flynn Paul starts his video summarising the dominant narrative that's being taught in universities in America about the nation's history. Columbus and the Europeans who followed him sailed to the New World with the intention of exploiting whomever they found, and if necessary, enslaving or exterminating them. Soon afterwards, they began importing black bodies from Africa. They then built the world's richest country out of a combination of slave labour, stolen land and environmental destruction. Yep, that sounds about what you'd learn in most schools and universities today, and strangely familiar to any Australian. But Professor Finn Paul says that narrative is wrong in many ways. And while that is troubling, there is something much, much more troubling about it. If you teach generation after generation that their country, their society, and their history are uniquely awful, 
they are likely to believe you. This is a sure route to societal failure. He's right. We simply cannot go on teaching kids that our nations were founded on nothing good, which is actually a lie that comes from a worldview based on what's known in academia as Marxist critical theory. It's a lie that almost wiped Eastern Europe and parts of Asia out completely in the 20th century and led to the deaths of tens of millions of people at the hands of their own governments. Their own governments. Let that sink in. How does that happen? That's not some right-wing cooker theory. It really happened. Anyway, if we keep teaching kids that Australia was stolen rather than built by generations of immigrants on a bedrock of hundreds of years of British political and economic thought that itself was built upon thousands of years of European thought and progress, then we are lying to them by omission. They grow up, become teachers, and teach the lies to the next generation of kids. And pretty soon, most people believe, deep in their bones, that the country is built only on the horror of a brutal invasion. And when that is the case, the country will collapse. It has to. Unless good people stand up to the lie. And that's hard when the lie has been accepted as a new deep cultural truth and dominates society and its media and education and even corporations. And your job promotion actually depends on you reading the script and towing the line. What do you mean? You're not going to do a welcome to country. No promotion for that mid-level manager, says HR. He displays a lack of cultural sensitivity that violates the values of Megabank Incorporated. But I digress. Where were we? Oh, yes. The founding of America. Professor Finn Paul says the narrative of the stolen country doesn't stand up to scrutiny by any measure. And it's dangerously short-sighted. There is hardly a single civilization on Earth which did not displace natives or which did not engage in nasty wars or ethnic cleansings at many points during its history. No matter who discovered the New World, it's inevitable that a large proportion of its inhabitants would have died within the first few decades after first contact. The New World population was smaller and more homogenous than the Old World population. Thus, its people had less immunity to disease than the people of the Old World where communities from Africa, Asia, and Europe had been intermingling for millennia. So the claims of genocide by disease have almost nothing to do with European actions, apart from their simply reaching the New World. And, of course, Europeans of the time had no way of predicting the continent-wide epidemic repercussions of their actions. Okay, fair enough. But surely what we hear about native societies being less warlike more peacefully nomadic and living in perfect harmony with the environment is true, isn't it? That Native American society was just as warlike as any other in human history. The anthropologist's vision of Native Americans as peace pipe-smoking environmentalists, which gained purchase in the 1970s, has long since given way to a more Hobbesian portrait of pre-Columbian reality. In North America, most natives were primitive farmers, this means that, with some exceptions, they had no permanent settlements. They farmed in an area for a few decades until they wore out the soil. Then, they moved on to greener pastures where the hunting was better and the land more fertile. If somebody was already on those greener pastures, that meant war. If you won, the land was yours, and the tribe you defeated was destroyed or assimilated. 
This pattern repeated itself endlessly. In most of North America, the idea that any one piece of land belonged to any one tribe for more than 50 or 100 years is highly doubtful. The idea that the Europeans stole land which had belonged in perpetuity to any one tribe is ludicrous. What? You can't say that. So I wonder how much of that applies to Australian Indigenous history too. I mean, that's certainly a shock, right? To hear this may actually be a truer narrative than the one we've all been taught. The one that has the Champagne Socialist set in Delkeith, Unley Park, Ascot, Turak and Double Bay, tisking about the horrors of European history while indulging in the latest woke Liberal Party charity lunch, darling. Oh, we do so get on well with our Labour friends these days, such fun. We normal Aussies have been lied to by the political hipster set. I wonder why. Not like there's any money or incentives in keeping the victim narrative alive, is there? But it's not just that Europeans didn't really do anything that God or Mother Nature, if you're an atheist, hadn't kind of already planned out. Like the fact that the old world and the new world just had to clash inevitably sometime in history. That the old world wasn't sustainable and the technology gap just became too big and there had to be a reckoning. So colonialism of some kind was inevitable. Nope, wait. There's more. Those thousands of years of European thought and philosophy and evolution led to something previously unheard of, a moral concern for all of humanity. This is the basic math of all human history. If you can defend your land, you can keep it. If you can't, you lose it. What is unique is that in conquering North America, some Europeans expressed moral qualms about what they were doing. This was true from the very beginning. The priest Bartolomé de las Casas wrote an eloquent plea to the monarchs of Spain as early as the 1540s, chronicling in detail how wanton adventurers had exploited natives against the express will of the Spanish crown. The priest's concerns were picked up by countless others over the centuries and continue to this day. Yes, it was Western Europeans who made an issue of human rights, which is why we debate the morality of conquest in the first place. But who wants to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, that's not going to make it sound cool over that champagne lunch with the girls or boys, is it? This is actually no joke, folks. We are about to lose the society, culture, political, legal and economic system that has kept us free, safe and made us wealthy compared to the rest of the world for 235 years. We simply have to stop the casual incremental rot that's caused by modern progressive thinking that's actually very, very regressive. We must begin to again respect and honor what we have and what hundreds and thousands of years of European history brought us and British history specifically. And I know it's not cool these days to admit this, but we have to, or our system is done for. If it were just a few academic radicals pushing crazy outdated Marxist ideas of oppression, it'd be fine. But it's in the mainstream now. You can't escape it. At school, at uni, at work, even the corporate world, everywhere you turn, lies and false narratives that are almost always forced and at least certainly coerced into accepting or else. Some courage and bravery is really needed. Now, let's be clear. Nobody is saying that horrors didn't happen, but the simplistic narratives have got to stop. 
There's not an Australian alive today who can't show you some horrors and injustices in their ancestors' lives. Some newer Aussies don't even have to go back one generation. So we truly are one people blessed with this unique combination of an amazing land to call home, peace and freedom from the horrors of war, and an incredibly fair system of government and justice by comparison to most other places and times. But to be fair, let's look at what was the worst case of war between settlers and the indigenous people in our nation's history. As Dr. Nicholas Clements writes in his 2014 book, The Black War, between 1824 and 1831, at least 218 colonists and some 600 Aborigines died violently in Eastern Tasmania. The Black War, as it became known, was the most intense frontier conflict in Australia's history. Yet many Australians have never heard of it. So let's take as our source one of the more progressive sources, one of the more progressive outlets. Uh, this is all from the taxpayer-funded National Museum of Australia's Digital Classroom, resources used to teach school kids today. The museum says that the first permanent European settlement in Tasmania was at Risdon Cove in 1803. The primary motivation of the settlement was to stop the French claiming the island. They'd been sailing about and they were at war with the English at the time. Now by 1830, there were about 23,000 European settlers and convicts living in Tasmania. Tasmanian Aborigines were vehemently opposed to British expansion. And the National Museum says that by the mid 1820s, the situation had become desperate for Aboriginal people whose numbers had fallen to fewer than 2,000 due to conflicts, disease and displacement. In about 1824, the most extensive conflict in Australia's history, the extremely violent Black War, began. Settlers drove Tasmanian Aborigines from their lands, murdering many. Tasmanian Aborigines also attacked and killed settlers and their families, raiding houses and farms for food and resources and trying to drive out the British. This bloke, Colonel George Arthur, took up office as Lieutenant Governor of Tasmania in 1824. The museum says that initially, Arthur dealt with Tasmanian Aborigine resistance fighters by treating them as criminals and bringing them before the courts for punishment when they were caught. But by 1826, this approach was proving fruitless, and Arthur declared all Aboriginal resistance fighters to be insurgents. This meant that soldiers and police could raid Aboriginal camps without provocation to arrest and detain any Tasmanian Aborigines they found. And here's where it gets really bad. Many Tasmanian Aborigines were shot on sight, including women and children, leading to further escalations in retaliatory violence. Welcome to All Out war. In 1828, the fighting had become so vicious, Arthur declared martial law in the settled districts, labelling Tasmanian Aborigines as open enemies of the state and giving them no protection under the law. In 1830, Arthur issued his now famous proclamation, implying equality under the law for both black and white citizens in an attempt to calm the escalating situation. The museum says that this equality was, however, non-existent, with white people seldom properly punished for the same crimes for which Tasmanian Aborigines were hanged. And then the maths of history played out. Arthur was openly criticised by settlers who felt he wasn't doing enough to protect them and their assets. 
The media even got into the act. And in 1830, Arthur was under so much pressure, he established the Black Line, a plan to form a line stretching across the settled districts and move south, pushing the local Aborigines onto the Tasman Peninsula, where they could be rounded up and then relocated to Tasmania's offshore islands. There were probably only a few hundred Aborigines left by this stage, according to the museum, but they were very organised and they used guerrilla warfare tactics to inflict high levels of damage. On the 7th of October 1830, more than 2,200 settlers, military, police and convicts reported to seven pre-arranged locations across the settled districts, the largest force ever mobilised against Aboriginal people anywhere in Australia. The line represented about 10% of the European Tasmanian population. But the whole thing was a logistical failure for the settler side. Only two Aborigines were documented as captured and the same number recorded as killed. However, the scale of the thing troubled the Aborigines and they began to avoid living in the settled districts. Then a few years later, this bloke entered the scene. George Augustus Robinson, an Englishman that Governor Arthur had appointed as a conciliator to the Aborigines in 1829. He learned some of the local Aboriginal languages and attempted to form cordial relationships with people in the settled districts, says the National Museum. He frequently travelled with other Aboriginal Tasmanians, like Truganini, using them as intermediaries and representatives who could convince groups to relocate. The small population of about 200 Tasmanian Aborigines who remained in the settled districts after this period were gradually removed to a settlement on Flinders Island in Bass Strait, run by Robinson. But many died there, and by 1847, only 40 people were left, considered the last remaining Tasmanian Aborigines. This small group was relocated to the Tasmanian mainland at Oyster Cove. But by 1876, all but one of them had died. Despite all of this, the National Museum says Tasmanian Aborigines are today thriving. Around 25,000 people in Tasmania identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. It's an awful story, like so much of history. But this happened almost 200 years ago, as the old world and the new world clashed. It was a war. It was fought fiercely on both sides. There were good men in the mix trying to broker peace. But in the end, politics failed and fighting broke out, as it does even today around the world, and there is death and there are winners and there are losers. And we must do all we can to avoid war, to find political solutions to things. But ripping the scab off old wounds of our ancestors and saying, you owe me to the descendants of those who hurt their ancestors is not the road to a lasting peace, especially in a land so rich with opportunity and a leg up for anyone underprivileged in Australia. And it's in no way unifying or healthy. Here's voice architect and campaigner, the man Anthony Albanese described as a giant, Thomas Mayo, speaking at a Black Lives Matter rally in 2020, showing his commitment to unity and proving that the voice has nothing to do with radical left-wing ideology. Mayo was a wharfie and a union official. And in 1998, I was on that wharf, 
I was driving down to the wharf in the morning, listening to the radio, and John Howard, that bastard, had colluded with my employer, Patrick Stevedores, to drag us out of our livelihoods all around the country. And we fought back. And because of my union's part in social justice, being there at the forefront, helping the Gurindji people with the Wayfield walk-off, the Pilbara strike, the community came out and helped us win. And here's Teela Reid, the woman that Albo called, along with Thomas Mayo, one of the remarkable people advising him on The Voice. She's explaining how The Voice will have nothing to do with the other demand of the Uluru Statement, a treaty or reparations or more special land rights. A number of um, particularly important legal concepts which I want to draw people's attention to. As many of you know, um, I'm a lawyer and I'm an activist, but first and foremost, I am a proud Wiradjuri and Walwan woman. It was with respect to the Communist Party and the particular struggle that it um, fought with and beside First Nations was it addressed this assumption that Australia um, was peacefully settled. And I think if we continue to speak around this issue, settlement of Australia, um, we know that that's an assumption legally and politically that is dishonest. And I think the crux of our struggle, uh, in particular from a First Nations perspective, has been to um, shift the narrative around that. And we have witnessed that narrative explode often uh, every January 26th. Teela Reid has made it clear on Twitter regularly that she wants Australia Day abolished. In this video, she was speaking alongside Thomas Mayo on a webinar for the Search Foundation, which describes itself as, quote, the successor organisation of the Communist Party of Australia. As a lawyer, um, recently some people brought to my attention the importance of lawyers within the Communist Party. Uh, in particular, uh, there was Christian Smith and Elliot Johnson who um, had pivotal roles and lawyers' roles within the movements have been particularly important. This was a conference that was paid for by you, partly. Search Foundation co-hosted this with the New South Wales State Library. It was a one-day series of six one-hour online forums to commemorate the centenary of the founding of the Communist Party of Australia in October 1920. How nice. And did Tila mention that, that she's a lawyer? As a lawyer now, I think, uh, you know, I'm considered radical and I don't see myself as someone who's radical, but I've spoken to many um, law students recently down south from Monash um, at my old university, the UNSW. And one of the things that concerns me is the conservatism of our profession. <laughs> the legal profession in Australia is far from conservative, especially on the academic front. But anyway... The great gaslight of our times is Aboriginal Affairs Minister Linda Burney saying, we who oppose the voice are inspiring hate and division. What a joke. We simply can't continue to have three flags in this country. We can only have one. We have to decide whether we're a socialist communist country or a liberal free market one. We can't actually be both. And there's no middle ground on that. It's one or the other. And we must not establish two nations in this land through any kind of treaty or special parliamentary bodies enshrined in our constitution. 
That will only keep the flames of racial division alive forever. We simply must heal and move forward. It is simply not a lie, nor is it an exaggeration, to say that these activists, who are not fringe dwellers, but as the Prime Minister has said, are his remarkable advisers on The Voice, do not want treaty. Reparations, they want that as well, and a divided two-nation system with a heavy dose of socialist-communist ideology thrown in. That is what they want. It is not fear-mongering to state that clear and apparent truth. That is what I call truth-telling. So stop accusing the no side of dirty tricks, Linda Burney. We're just telling the truth. And as for Albo, when he was all over the shop on 2GB Breakfast with Ben Fordham this week, what a mess. What policy levers will The Voice give to Aboriginal people that they don't have now? What they'll give is the opportunity to put forward the views uh, that they have of how you close the gap. We're currently reaching four out of the 19 targets on health, education, housing, life expectancy, infant mortality, all of those issues. If we do things the same way, we should expect the same outcome. Does your government consult Indigenous Australians now on the issues that impact them? Well, of course, governments consult people, but this is an elected body that will be able to make representations uh, to the government. This is a structural reform to do things in a different way so that it may make representations, as the wording says, mm. on matters that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander okay, people. But you, let's just stop it there for a sec. What, what, what did he just say? What, what the heck was that? Is that the details they say that they've given us? I've never heard more vague bureaucratic waffle speak come out of the mouth of an Australian Prime Minister in my entire life, and that, that is saying something. Ben Fordham tried to make some sense of it, like with, you know, logic. You're already listening to Indigenous people. You already consult with Indigenous people and Indigenous groups. You've got the National Indigenous Australians Agency and their role, by definition, is to provide advice to the Prime Minister well, that's the and department. the Minister. that's the department. Let's be clear, Ben. I've heard yeah, you talk about that before. They've got a job. That's just the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. Oh, so they're just their, a department. They don't job, matter. Their job is... You were just talking 10 minutes job, ago about job, the importance of public chance, servants. If you give me a chance... You were just talking 10 minutes ago yeah, about the importance they, of public servants. And they servants. do play an important role. But they and they play consult an, with Indigenous people. They play an important role in service right, delivery. Let me ask you this. You're wanting to formalise who should be listened to. And members of The Voice will have exclusive access to government and decision makers. Isn't there a risk that by doing that, that others will be excluded, that there'll be other members of the Indigenous community? And I've heard this directly from one who says, well, you know what will happen? When we have an idea, if we're not on The Voice, we'll be told, not by you, but by others on The Voice, to say, well, no, hang on a moment. If you want to, well, if you want to put an idea forward, you've got to get on right, The Voice. Ben. I'll, I'll give you the tip. People who ring in to your program or people who write to me, or people have multiple opportunities to make representations to government. This is about uh, doing things better for Indigenous Australians. This isn't an idea that came from me, that came from the Labor Party, that came from politicians. This came from Indigenous Australians themselves. Uh, no, actually, it came from the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart, which came from a four-day constitutional convention involving only 250 people, which followed a 2016 listening tour conducted in only 
12 Aboriginal com communities by a referendum council made up of only 16 people appointed by Bill Shorten, who was then ALP opposition leader, and possibly the most left-wing Liberal Prime Minister Australia has ever had, Malcolm Turnbull, in 2015. That is where it came from. The whole thing has been skewed to the political left from the very start, and it is about enshrining a left-wing voice to Parliament permanently that will permanently skew political discourse in this country on everything that affects Aboriginal people, which is everything. Aren't you putting one group of Australians above all others? Because we know what you're trying to do here, Prime Minister. You're trying to lift up a section of Australia that has suffered extreme disadvantage. But in trying to help, you are creating an exclusive group and the voice will have influence not afforded to other sections of society, including Indigenous Australians who aren't on the voice. Isn't that stepping away from the idea that we are all equal? You know what, Ben? You've got my phone number and you contact me about issues. Uh, people in the business community contact me about issues. Yesterday I met with uh, some senior people in the National Rugby League about issues. I meet with people all of the time about issues. Uh, but talking putting into the, the Constitution... About, talking about Indigenous Australians having special rights ignores the fact that this is the most disadvantaged group in no, Australia. No, I'm not ignoring that. I'm there's not a, ignoring there's that. an eight-year life expectancy gap. There is a greater chance of an Indigenous young ma male going to jail than to go to university. All right, on that, on and nothing that we've done to date has fixed any of it. Not all the bureaucrats and billions of dollars thrown at the problem has achieved anything. And neither will another bloated, overfunded thing that none of us really can understand that Canberra is proposing now. As Jacinta Price says, we don't need a voice, we need ears and action. The fact is, you don't need to change the constitution to get the job done. So they are hiding something. Let's say the voice gets up. What will you say if the voice says, we want Aboriginal people to be able to access the pension at a younger age? Well, governments will make decisions based upon representation. Because that's, that, that's, I, I know it's been knocked back in a court case recently, but that seems practical to me. Well, that, right? That's, if you don't have the same life expectancy, you're less likely to reach pension age. What if the voice says, after dealing with health and education and the justice system, what if 12 months down the track, the voice says, we want to change the date of Australia Day? What do you say as Prime Minister? Ben, stop it. This is That's practical stuff. Canberra doesn't do practical. It just does waffle and paper shuffling. Good Lord, man. You can't ask specific questions about specific things in the actual real world and expect the Prime Minister to cope. We say is that we have no plans to no, change, what, uh, to change Australia them? Day. You'll we say, we no? say we have no plans, absolutely. And what, what's made but, but clear, But you'll ben, say to the voice, no? Of course we will. If we don't agree with them, of course we will. As, as is made very clear by the wording that's put forward, is the parliament remains sure prime. no i know that i'm just Supreme. keen to know because obviously they're Absolutely. going to give you advice and you yep. know you're asking people to vote yes but then when the voice asks for something a lot of the time i'm guessing you're going to say no Let well me just the voice as one of the principles put forward and in the yes pamphlet makes it very clear the voice will not have 
the right of veto. Understand. Government decision stays the same. Of well, course. you say you understand, Ben, but but not all of the listeners. If, if people listen to some of the debate that has gone on over the the last few months, they don't know that. Okay. They don't know that. They think that this is about creating special rights above everyone else. Ah, it's our fault. It's our fault we don't understand. This is not about giving a particular group of Australians based on their race a superior level of access and priority than the rest of us, except that it is. But, but then if it advises on stuff that our elected MPs don't like, then they, of course, can say no. So it's just an advisory body and has no teeth. So if it's just an advisory body, why do we need to change the Constitution? Something is just not adding up here which makes me think something very fishy is going on and smart Australians, quite rightly, know when there is a massive BS factor at play. Can I just ask you, just, I know you've said you have great respect for some of the architects of The Voice. I wonder if you agree with them on some of the following points. Professor Megan Davis says, the Indigenous voice to Parliament will be able to speak to the Cabinet, to Ministers, to Public Servants and the Reserve Bank. Yes or no, will The Voice be able to speak directly to the RBA? Well, I can't talk directly to the RBA board. So no? And, and I'm the Prime Minister. No, Ben. Okay. And, and, Thomas and people Mayo. know the idea. No, Ben, what what this is about... No, no, hang on. You've no, answered can, that. Can I've I got I, a few more that I've can got to Can I make through. this point? Because I know where you're reading from. You're reading from the no pamphlet. I, I, I'm, no, I'm not reading... Excuse me, Prime Minister. Well, that's I'm in the not no pamphlet. Reading, excuse me. Well, that quote I'm is in the no reading, pamphlet. Excuse me. Well, it is. I am not reading from the no pamphlet. I'm reading from my own questions that I have written. No, that's so that fine. I, so that, that, that quote is in the me, no pamphlet. Let me finish. So that I don't misquote people sure. like Megan Davis or Thomas Mayo. Thomas Mayo says the voice will help to tear down institutions, pressure governments to pay the rent, pr- pay reparations and compensation, and punish politicians who fail to deliver. So I'm keen to know, what does pay the rent mean? Well, I disagree with that. But Are there going I'll, to be reparations? I'll, 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 no, Ben. I'll make this w- point. Wouldn't it stand on, to can, reason? Can I, no, I'm, I'm on a flow well, here. Well, when I'm you finish... A, you've, just, you've just accused me of reading from a pamphlet. No, I reading no, from. I didn't. So I said me, those quotes are from the no pamphlet, which they all are. All right, I'll listen which back they to that. Are. But anyway, let, let me just focus on the important thing. Surely, as part of the Uluru Statement, we have a voice, we have treaty, we have truth-telling. As part of a treaty... Won't there be compensation? If there is, I mean, that's not totally unexpected. This isn't about a treaty, Ben. But there are three parts of the Uluru is, Statement. Yeah, and this is not. So you're talking this about is the not about a treaty. But as part of treaty, which we this guess is, will be a following step. This is not about. A do treaty. you foresee that compensation would be? This paid? is not about a treaty. This isn't about that. This whole thing is a train wreck. The Uluru Statement clearly mentions a treaty. Some Aboriginal activists like Senator Thorpe want a no vote because they want a treaty and it's not in this referendum. It's, like, it, it's not like it's not on the table. It feels like there's this apple sitting on the table and Elbow's going, oh, that's not an apple, Ben. There's no apple here. Nobody's talking about an apple, Ben. I mean, it's point-blank denial of reality. And I'm not sure how you argue with that. It's time for the Prime Minister to put this thing to bed for good and maybe salvage what little credibility he can from the rubble. It's a disgracefully botched process leading to a disgracefully botched referendum debate and it will rightly fail. 
No sane Australian can vote yes because we have no idea what we're voting for. They can't define it. They can't sell it. It's a shambles. I almost feel sorry for him. And a big shout out to Ben Fordham and the team at 2GB for that interview. Historic stuff that won't be forgotten too quickly. Professor Nigel Bigar, CBE, is Regius Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. He's an author, an Anglican priest, and a theologian. In 2017, he began the Oxford Project, Ethics and Empire, which critiques the purely negative view of empires and colonialism that so many of us are taught to believe today. And it argues that they were, in fact, morally mixed. Of course, our tolerant academics across the Western world today widely criticised the project. Professor Bigar will be joining me for an interview on this show on Tuesday, August the 1st. Uh, and the reason that we're doing it on August the 1st is that it's the 189th anniversary of Emancipation Day. That date, in 1834, marked the end of slavery in the British Empire, when the 1833 Abolition of Slavery Act came into force. So it's kind of 190 years in a way. In many of Britain's former colonies in the Caribbean, as well as in Canada, August 1 is celebrated as Emancipation Day. We'll be recording the interview, uh, an interview with, uh, with, with, the, uh, with the good professor, um, and there will be a major event in Brisbane organised by the Australian Institute of Progress. Now, the QR code that's on your screen now is a link to where you can get tickets for the event if you're in Brisbane and you'd like to join us for that uh, special event, that special breakfast. Professor Big R will be joining us via Zoom and we'll be taking audience Q&A. So just point your phone's camera at that code and it'll give you the link. Nigel Bigar spoke to former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson, on his podcast this week about the question of empire and colonialism. You've got this uh, new book coming out, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. Yep. What are you driving at with the book? What's its purpose? Uh, can you give us a taste? Yeah, the, the reason I, I, I wrote it was, was uh, I mean, partly as, as a Briton, uh, to be told as I am being told uh, that the last 300 years of, of my history, certainly abroad, was, was a litany of, of atrocity and, and racism and economic exploitation is, is, is a difficult thing to hear. Um, if it were true, then I just need to swallow it. But I've been reading about imperial history for about 30 years now, and I know it, <laughs> it just wasn't that simple. And a lot of it, a lot of what he been said is simply not true. Professor Bigar says Britain was, from the early 1800s to the 1930s, the leading Western power. So the record of the British Empire is the record of a large part of Western history. The, the, the British traders, slave traders, like, like the other Europeans, arrived on the coast of West Africa, and they didn't go far inland. Uh, the slaves were brought to them by other Africans who had enslaved them and sold them. Uh, so. Um, Let's remember, Africans were involved in the slave trade before they got to the coast. And in fact, Africans have been involved in trading slaves with, um, uh, to, to the Roman Empire mm. uh, under the subsequent Muslim empires too. So yes, uh, the British were involved in, in uh, slavery and the slave trade. But then in 1807, uh, the British Empire abolished the trade. And in 1833, abolished slavery throughout the empire. 
And that made uh, Britain the, the first major power in the history of the world uh, to abolish the trade and the institution and to spend the next 150 years of its existence until it dissolved in suppressing slavery um, in Brazil, across the Atlantic, throughout Africa, and, and David Livingstone was a major opponent of slavery in, in Southern Africa, um, and um, India, and, and Malaysia. I don't recall learning that at school, or hearing it on TV, or reading it in the newspaper. There are a couple of, of American uh, political scientists um, who have said that this was uh, the, the most costly moral uh, international endeavor in the history of the world. Um, uh, so, uh, and perhaps the most outstanding human rights movement of all times. Well, absolutely, because it, it was done in the name of, of a Christian belief in, in the basic human equality of, of all races under God and, and, and the right of all people to be um, uh, treated in a decent fashion, regardless of skin color. And uh, this campaign was largely led by people who are now really demonized. They were well-to-do white males, often backed, of course, by some wonderful women, the very sort of people now that many elites would say are to be despised. Good point, John. No matter what, if we truly want to return to a society that is civilized and liberal, we all need to learn to rediscover some true virtues, says the good professor perhaps starting with humility and self-criticism. It's quite common for uh, social justice warriors to um, be quite clear that um, those who disagree with them are evil and wicked and, and racist and white supremacist and whatever. Um, sin lies over there, wrongdoing lies over there, uh, but not in here. And that, that leads to a very um, unforgiving uh, political climate because um, we're very harsh toward each other because we don't seem to recognize the extent to which we ourselves are morally compromised and we, we share with people we disagree with uh, moral flaws. Uh, and I think we, in order to recover a properly liberal society, it's not enough to uh, uh, keep alive the traditional liberal virtues of respect and tolerance. We need something deeper. Um, I speak as a Christian here and, and certainly in Christian tradition and there may be other traditions too, where the virtues of humility uh, um, and self-criticism and, and uh, forgiveness are prominent. And I think we need those two to sustain and generate a properly liberal society again, because uh, at the moment the temper is quite illiberal. Professor Nigel Bigar of Oxford University speaking with former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia John Anderson on his podcast this week. As I mentioned, Professor Bigar will be joining me on the Other Side interviews, which first streams on ADH TV at 6pm. Uh, every Tuesday night. He'll be joining me on Tuesday, August the 1st, which is Emancipation Day. That interview with John Anderson is excellent. It's well worth checking out in full. They take a, a very broad look at Nigel Bigar's work and thinking. On Emancipation Day, I'll be doing a deeper dive with Nigel, more specifically around the abolition of slavery. Uh, the interview will be running on that Tuesday night on August the 1st, but if you would like to join us at the event, uh, the breakfast will be held in Brisbane. You can get all the details at the QR code that's on the screen at the moment. And if you use this QR code, uh, you will get a 10% discount. The event is put on by the Australian Institute for Progress. 
uh, and it's, uh, we'd really love to have you there as well. And you can also support the AIP, which is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to promote liberal ideas and thought to counter all the woke left nonsense out there. So just point your phone's camera at that code right now. It'll give you the link to find out more info about the event if you're in Brisbane. And that's proudly supported by ADH TV and Arcana Capital Property Investments. Video of the week goes to Channel 9 for the Grand Night of Hummus. This man vowed to eat his body weight in hummus in a single year, but he only got through fewer than one kilo, uh, 40 one kilo tubs. Then he made a suit of body armour out of the containers. How much did you eat? 37 tubs. His love of the chickpea spread saw him vow to eat his body mass in hummus in a year. He kept the tubs and made a suit of armour out of them. His true identity a secret, he is the hero of hummus, who was about to be knighted. I shall be spreading the good word of hummus. The most refreshing and nourishing of all condiments across the land. Indeed it is. I smell a hummus-induced PR stunt but it was a damn good one. Back to more serious matters. Uh, I don't like royal commissions, they cost money. But when the problem is the politicians themselves, there is often no avoiding it. And we do need a full royal commission into this whole Brittany Higgins affair. The story brought massive reputation damage to the Morrison government, which it seems now was completely unjustified. It damaged the career and reputation of a young man who's been left without any way to clear his name. And we have the question of a multi-million dollar payout from the taxpayer to Ms Higgins for damages to her career. Despite the fact that her career seems to be fine, she's just started an internship at the United Nations, no less. Alan Jones made the point here on ADH TV this week that the compensation paid to Ms Higgins exceeds most other types of work-related compensation in the federal government. Quoting an article in News Weekly magazine, Allen noted that the lump sum payable for injuries resulting in death under Comcare are just over $600,000. For a veteran's family, if that serviceman or woman is killed on duty, the payment's $174,000, and only if the Commonwealth accepts liability for the death. The public are saying what the hell's going on here. Janet Albrechtson, writing recently in the Australian, asserted that Higgins was awarded compensation, as News Weekly puts it, resulting from a claim of 40 years' worth of economic loss and the inability to pursue a political career. Documents obtained by Albrechtson state that Higgins' claim was that she was, quote, medically unfit for any form of employment and has been given a very poor prognosis for future employment. Higgins received 2.5 million in economic loss. But Higgins worked as the media advisor for the First People's Assembly of Victoria, and according to her LinkedIn profile, she was an interim media advisor with the Queensland Human Rights Commission. And God forbid she's been appointed, remember, medically unfit for any form of employment, any form of employment, and a very poor prognosis for future employment. God forbid she's been appointed a visiting fellow at the Australian National University Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Good God. She's posed for pictures outside a UN, the UN building in Geneva, announcing that she's, quote, honoured to intern this year at the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, unquote. At the same time as all this business in Canberra was going on, she was completing a degree at Griffith University. 
remember, medically unfit for any form of employment. Alan Jones here on ADH TV this week. What the hell is going on here, Mr. Albanese? Alan called on Peter Dutton to keep up the fight on this one and not drop the ball for one second. Dutton is showing the kind of strength a lot of Australians want to see on issues that his predecessor was too gutless to confront. And it's paying off. The win in a federal by-election on the Gold Coast this past weekend might have been expected. The seat of Fadden is a coalition stronghold. But a swing to the Liberal Party of about 2.5% is still a good sign for Mr Dutton. That the party is on the right track, being more hardline and anti-left in its rhetoric. Here's how Channel 9's Sunday Today show reported it. This is a safe Liberal national seat in Queensland, so the party was always expected to retain it. Overnight, Cam Caldwell did just that, beating out 13 candidates, including Labor's Letitia Del Fabro. Importantly, though, the LNP increased its margin in Fadden. We're expecting to see a swing of around 2% in this by-election. So that will provide Peter Dutton with a confidence boost that his message on cost of living is cutting through, particularly after a disastrous result for him in the Aston by-election in April. That's Channel 9's Eliza Edwards on the Today Show Sunday morning. Peter Dutton told the party faithful on the Gold Coast Saturday night that the pain of Labor economic policy is starting to bite. People are hurting at the moment and the Labor economic experiment is failing Australians. <laughs> Labor's energy experiment is failing Australians. <laughs> and as you moved around the booths, you get people who are raising important issues, their mortgages, the work that we've done in the first 12 months to make sure that we work together in a united way, to make sure that we adhere to our values, to make sure that we present the manifesto, the alternative to the Australian public. That is what we're working on, because there is a better way for our country. Our country is going in the wrong direction under Anthony Albanese. The Labor Party were in full force spin-doctoring the thing on Sunday morning. Treasurer Jim Chalmers told the ABC Insiders program that there's nothing to see here, folks. Oh, look, we already understood uh, before this uh, by-election in Fadden that people are under the pump. That's why the primary focus of my two budgets, the government's economic plan, the primary focus of the government is in providing some cost of living help so we can take some of the edge off these pressures without adding to inflation. That was true before Saturday. It's true after Saturday. It remains our focus. And similarly with the seat itself. I mean, this was a, a safe blue ribbon LMP seat with a double digit margin before Saturday. It will be all of those things after Saturday. We are aware of the pressures on people before the by-election and that's why it's our primary focus. And as we head into the weekend, Jim Chalmers has put out his little uh, well-being list of how to, how to make life better. I've got a few suggestions of my own which I'll be talking about next week on the show. One of them is much, much smaller government and the government getting out of our lives a lot more. We wish them luck. And that's all we've got time for this week, Big News Week. Make sure you join us on Tuesday night for the Other Side interviews. I'll be speaking to Avi Yemeni, and it is an interview in which Avi really opens up on a lot of things. If you know Avi's work, you enjoy Avi's work, you're going to see a totally different side of Avi on Tuesday night. So please join us. The Other Side interviews, streaming first at 6pm here on ADH TV, as it does every Tuesday night. And don't forget The Other Side Australia every Friday at 8. And of course, both shows on demand whenever you want to watch. Just download the ADH TV app. Or if you don't want to download an app, just type adh.tv into any web browser and voila, there we are. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.